0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: Hi, I'm Ethan Suplee. Welcome to American Glutton. Outside of acting, my two favorite things to do are diet and eat. I have a very complicated relationship with food, and on this podcast, we're going to talk about all of it. Food as entertainment food as sport, food as fuel. I'll talk to experts and the average person, just like you and me. Today on American Glutton, all the way from the UK, my guest is Chris Williamson. Through his one-on-one coaching and his Modern Wisdom podcast, Chris strives to help people understand more about themselves and the world around them. Chris says, personal growth and introspective work is an ugly business, You need radical self-honesty in order to become all you can be. You can find Chris on Instagram at ChrisWillX. Chris Williamson, welcome to the American Glutton podcast. Thank you very much for having me, brother. There's quite a bit I want to get into with you, your correlation and compilation of life hacks, which I think is super valuable. There there was something you said recently that I that I want to start off with. And then also at some point we have to just touch on the objectification of the male physique and the psychology behind it, because I think that's an important thing that is very rarely talked about, especially in the universe that I'm typically in.
2: I love it, man. Let's
1: do it. You said you are afraid of failure. But by procrastinating, you guarantee failure. You inoculate yourself from failure publicly by certifying your failure privately. When I read this, I literally did mental cartwheels to instances in my life that this is true. Going all the way back to childhood. And like I got into like I had flashes of like my friends playing pickleball and and. And me going like, no, I don't like that. That's a stupid game. I'm not going to play. And, you know, (laughs) a a piece of artwork that I wanted to make that I then did it. And I think it's a really simple idea, but so profound. And I just want, I want to hear your thoughts on it because it, it, for me, it really did, you know, touch on quite a bit through my life where I've done this.
2: Yeah. So I'll I'll do that quote again, just in case people missed it. We procrastinate because we don't want to look bad. Our fear of failure stops us from doing things. You are afraid of failure, but by procrastinating, you guarantee failure. You inoculate yourself from failure publicly by certifying your failure privately. And the solution is that you just jump and learn to fly on the way down. If you wait until you're ready, you will be waiting forever. And I know it's cliche, and I just sound like an Instagram quote uh, account at the moment. But, you know, there's some wisdom in that stuff. What I realized with this situation was actually brought about learning about um, automatic driving cars, you know, these driverless cars. Uh And there was some research done that looked at the fact that even though all of the statistics say that driverless cars or automatic driving cars are significantly safer, people still don't like putting their trust in a machine. And it's almost like we would sooner die at the behest of a human than live at the mercy of a machine. And it's the same with this situation. With procrastination, we don't want the world to tell us that we might be wrong, so we don't even bother dare risking ourselves and putting ourselves out there. It's much safer to woulda, shoulda, coulda from the couch as opposed to getting up, trying to do something, and then the world slapping you in the face and saying, ah, actually, buddy... You not know, good enough yeah
1: and 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 man this is this this for me this is the this is the fine line i get into where i have talked myself out of so much and then i did spend a period of my life where it was like whatever the first thought i have is unless it's super destructive right if i have the thought like i want to go rob a bank I'm going to fight that thought and, 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 and push back against it, which I'm not saying I've never had that thought. It's, uh, you know, I I watched the movie heat. That seems kind of romantic, right? This idea of bank robbery. I I obviously analytically don't want to do that, but there would be times where I would like, you know, be driving on a freeway and drive by this mountain that I've driven by 10,000 times and look at it and go, I wonder what it's like up at the top of that and, and, and have a a split second of like, yeah, I'd like to go up to the top of that mountain. You can only get there by walking and, and then talk myself out of it. And I never once did it. And then I hit this period of my life where I was like, I'm just going to do all of these thoughts. I'm, I'm not going to allow myself to get in the way with them, in the way of them. And, and it is really freeing and it doesn't matter if you don't make it to the top on your first attempt, um, you know, I think you probably should, if you can, if you fit, you know, if your legs aren't broken or, or you're not collapsing, with <laughs> heat stroke, you should try to make it to the top. But just doing it is, is a, is a totally different thing. Cause I will talk myself out of anything. <laughs> yeah, man, you're totally
2: right. Um, action is the antidote to anxiety, right? So, People get worried, and they get scared and concerned about overwhelm in life when they're not in control. When they don't feel like they've got a hands on the steering wheel, they get worried. The easiest answer to that is to just do something. And there's tons of different people from loads of disciplines. So there's the just-ship-it mentality, which is go to the market with a minimum viable product, start the email list, begin the podcast, start the YouTube channel, and learn, learn to fly on the way down. There's David Allen, who wrote Getting Things Done. He has this, what he calls his next action, which is all the time be looking for what the next physical action is that you can do to move yourself toward the goal. If I gave you enough time, you could walk to Mars. All that walking to Mars is, is one foot in front of the other, a step after a step after a step. Can you take a step? Yes, I can. Okay. It's just that over and over and over and over again. And focusing action first, which is what you've just said there, like you almost don't let yourself get into your own head. You don't permit yourself that time to question, well, should I really do this? And this is the curse of the overthinker. There may be many people listening who fall into that category. I know that I certainly do. Um, But the best athlete on the planet Aren't necessarily overthinkers. Anyone that watched the recent Michael Jordan documentary will have seen that he's a he's a clever guy, he's a cerebral guy. But when it was training time, he didn't overthink his training. He just got in there and did the work. And there's a lot to be said for that, right? That you don't necessarily need to gesticulate back and forth. Is it should I be? Is there a slightly more optimal way of me? Doing my car, like you know, this as well. It, you know, this shows tons and tons of uh, discussions about diet. The number of people that will talk about whether or not their pre digested grass fed goat butter in their post workout shake is actually the right BCAA 844 <laughs> ratio, but they're not fucking tracking calories. Right. It's like, bro, like you don't sweat the small stuff, stick to the program. And focus on action first. Like, yes, there is a time for you to sit back and get into planning mode. But once you've done that, just stick to the fucking program. Don't bother changing it up. But there's
1: an interesting thing you said, and you you talked about control. And I wonder if it's the instinct to guarantee control by no action, because therefore we are in control. We're in control of not doing the thing. Versus the potential to be out of control with action, especially action of something unknown.
2: That's okay. You you correct, me. We, we would much sooner uh, die at the um, behest of a human than live at the mercy of a, of a robot. And it's the same with this. We don't want... We don't like change, right? I, I realized this. I had a discussion recently about dating, and I realized that there was um, such an inbuilt fear of state change that sometimes I would have done all the hard work and got to this stage where maybe it was time for me to go around to a girl's house perhaps after a night out or after a date or whatever it might be and I would get this this thought in the back of my mind that would say like n- n- you don't really want to go or come up with some weird excuse I'm like hang on this really like lovely girl super attractive you've been you've done the fucking hard bit like why do you not want to go why do you not want to go around to a house and it came up in Mark Manson's Models, which is a phenomenal book and he said that naturally as humans we see a state change, we know the cave that we're in now, even if it's shit and cold and dark and wet and we're a bit miserable we're alive, and the cave that's next door that that cave might be warm and brilliant and you know, have a, a fucking disco lamp in it but it also might kill you And that is why we have to consciously push ourselves to be action-oriented because inevitably we're going to go through the path of least resistance, which is just inertia. And there's something as well that's terribly circular about this. And that's why I said that action is an antidote to anxiety because as people lose the ability or they lose focus on action first, what they'll find happening is that it becomes increasingly more and more difficult to act they'll do less and they'll think more and we all know this we get trapped in these periods where we overthink so much tons of thinking and thinking and thinking and we don't act and then there's other periods in our life where all that we're doing is acting all that we're doing is just getting getting it done we're shipping it all the time every single day full send. and the point is to step into that programming as best we can and focus on acting wherever we can
1: and the and, and the type of action, you know, I I think um, when we're on kind of autopilot, and I can the the easiest analogy for me with this is driving a car. Like you're not you're doing something, you're you're physically in control of uh, of a vehicle, but you're not thinking about everything. Now I turn my turn signal on. Now I turn the wheel. Now I apply pressure to the brake. Right? It it becomes automatic. Um, and I just wonder if if it, it, you know, once you know how to drive a car, but, but this could be with anything, the way I, the way I lived prior to the way I live now was also became on automatic and I had all my discomforts, but they were, I was accustomed to them. And so swapping them for a new set of discomforts, you just don't know. (laughs) And you go like, is it going to be so much worse or so much harder? It's that unknown thing. But in the long term, once you, once you switch them out, whatever they are, once you learn them, it's just like anything else. So that it's the initial action that, that that requires that push. And then I think we can uh, become accustomed to doing pretty much anything.
2: That's it, man. That's it. It, you know, again, this, um, this matrix of the... Thinking fast and slow comes back to us in multiple different ways. So James Clear's Cycle of Improvement, which is um, one, awareness, where you identify what you need to improve. Two, deliberate practice, where you focus on uh, conscious effort, on the area you want to improve. Three, habit, with practice, the effort all becomes automatic. And then number four, you repeat and you begin the cycle again. Or Daniel Kahneman from Thinking Fast and Slow, you've got your two thinking modes. Taylor Pearson talks about the fact that you sit back you have your planning brain, and you have your executing brain. All of these things occur. and But you're right, the, the challenge is always going to be at the very, very beginning. Like the first couple of sessions in the gym, before you know what machines to use, before you know where to put your bag, where to park, what the best route to drive there is, all of that stuff. Like when you start driving your car, it's a great example. You start driving your car and you left foot down right hand to a gear stick move like you know it's so arduous and laborious. like it's crap. yeah crap. And then now now, you know, a couple of a couple of years after being that, you're taking a phone call, you've got coffee in one hand and a crest in the other, you know, you're shouting at your kids and <laughs> you're like doing like spinning plates or all these sorts of things. Your mind's got five different stuff going to it. But this this very much is how life happens. You expand your domain of competence over time and increasingly when you look back you think the thing that last year was really hard for you to do this year you can get done in half an hour you'll know that with the, with the podcast man the first few podcasts that you did would have been real difficult and now it's just it's just a conversation it just flows Yeah. and this is you know the, the secret to high performance the secret to anyone that is a motherfucker at anything anyone that's a great writer great speaker great artist great whatever they suck at the start, no one starts doing something and is awesome. And it's so cliche. Oh, yeah, 10,000 hour rule, whatever you want going to say. But it's like, in a very, very real sense, everything that we do is a habit. You're always drilling something. And this is why I adore that no bad reps
1: Yeah,
2: um, strategy that you've got. Like you, In a very real sense, everything you do is deepening the groove of one particular type of behavior or another one particular type of thought pattern or another which one's it going to be is it going to be the one that in a day's time a week's time a year's time you're going to look back on and say yes that was the right decision or is it going to be the one that you look back and you say ah wish I hadn't done that right not only has that not achieved what I wanted but I now have to undo that groove to get myself out of it to get myself into the other one
1: Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. If we can broaden it out and say, like, publicly, it's the fear of failure. It's the fear of action. It's the fear of unknown. It's all of this. What is the trick to beating that? Because I know when I make these decisions of, like, whatever thought I have, as long as it's not truly destructive, like Rob a Bank, or punch a person in the <laughs> face or something like this. <laughs> I am going to do it. And I spent some time doing that. And I found myself at the top of a lot of mountains. Truly. I would be driving my car and I would have the thought, like, I wonder what it's like up there. And I would go, oh, I fucking have to pull over and do this now. And I would do that. <laughs> and it was awesome. It was really, really awesome. Uh, and I, basically if you go around los angeles there is no longer a peak that i haven't walked up to the top of simply because i spent months going whatever my thought is you know walking into random gyms and working out for a day in a random just because it was scary and i had the thought i wonder what it's like in there no i'm not gonna do that that's crazy and then i go in but I will say like, I'm not doing that right now and it's okay. I'm, I'm on a program that I'm happy with and I'm kind of focused on that, but there, there has to be some middle ground because prior to that, you know, I would just get bogged down in my routine and quite often for the majority of my life, my routine was destructive, even though it felt safe, it was very destructive.
2: I'm going to guess when you were doing your go up every mountain, have the thought and focus on action without any interjecting, that that was probably not super productive and a bit chaotic to live through.
1: Yes, it was was tough because there'd be times where I would go like, I'm going to pick a kid up from school, I see a mountain, and then I'm like, okay... (laughs) You know, I would I would looks literally like,
2: like little Jimmy's coming up coming up the mountain with me. Yeah, exactly. Well,
1: and, you know, quite often my kids would just refuse to do that. And so I'd have to, like, drive them home, <laughs> then go back. And my whole day would be spent like and then I'd get stuck on. No, I had this thought. And so everything else takes a back burner to this. Yeah, it wasn't. It was not a productive period of my life. I'm really glad I did it like as an experiment because I w- it was mm. challenging. Um and I can now drive around Los Angeles and and actually know objectively what the Vista is from basically every mountain which surrounds us. Um, but that's kind of all I did for a couple of months. Yeah. Well,
2: that's the, so that's the challenge, man. The, the, the challenge is this varied life where you focus on adventure isn't necessarily super conducive to being very, very productive because being productive requires you to narrow your focus onto a small number of things. You don't want to be a jack of all trades, right? You want to focus on the vital few as opposed to the trivial many, if you're looking at Greg McKeown's essentialism approach. Um, But, as you've said, you can get stuck in these ruts. You can start living a groundhog day. You know, If there's someone that's listening and they're thinking, right, that, that sounds like me. I tend to overthink and talk myself out of doing stuff, or I uh, I just have a, a general fear of it. Like, just try for a committed period of time, trying to focus on action first. So perhaps not quite as blasé as, as you, you where it's like I see a I see a large country park, I decide to run around it. Yeah. Um, but the thing the thing that you've been talking about doing for the last six months or one year, however long it is, whatever's been in the back of your mind, in one year's time, you could have realized that that's not the thing that you really wanted to do because you had a crack at it and it's actually not as fun as you wanted it to be. Or, in a year's time, you could still be thinking about doing it. And this is something really, really important I've been thinking about a lot recently, which is there is a sunk cost to indecision. Like, if you constantly think about one girl Just this girl in school and you think she's really hot and you want to go up to her and you want to talk to her and because of that you don't speak to any of the other girls that girl might be a total dick Right. she might have bad breath she might be a total bad match for you but because you've decided that you're going to obsess, obsess over this one girl enough to completely uh, dissolve your consciousness into one single obsession but not have enough action to warrant actually bringing it into into the real world to bother manifesting anything about it, you're just stuck in limbo. That's purgatory, man. That's, that's the place where so many people sit. And one wonderful mind trick to think of here is by trying at doing the thing, you're going to find out whether or not it's good for you. Because at the moment, you don't know anything. Go up to the girl, start the podcast, start the YouTube channel, write the blog. The reason that that um, procrastination quote that you mentioned at the start of the episode came up was because of an email list that I started last week. So I launched this email list months ago and then it was time for me to write my first email. Let's not forget, I'd spent months and months and months building my website, this amazing uh, email list, and I'd done all this stuff and i collected thousands of emails that was really good. People that wanted to hear from me but then I was terrified of writing an email because I didn't want it to stop. Right. I didn't want the newsletter to be bad. I didn't want people to say to me um, that they didn't like my work. I was nervous about being outside of my normal domain of competence, which is on a podcast, like this talking. I don't I don't write tons, like except for, you know, fucking Instagram captions <clears throat> and texts to your mates, like which everyone does. So I just there's all these different things swimming around. And I was like, I have the opportunity to do this in a month's time, I could still be thinking, ah, i to do that first email or I could just do it and yeah, maybe it's too long, maybe it's too short, maybe there's some spelling errors in it, maybe the formatting's not quite right, but it's done. And I got like hundreds, hundreds of replies from to the email of people just saying, thank you so much, like I really appreciate, it. actually quite cool. Uh, by the way, like, the rating has one R in instead of two, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, random little bits and pieces but it was done and now literally just before we got on the call I've just finished my second one and now I'm in the rhythm of it and this one took me it took me three hours as opposed to last week where it took me two days and the next week it might take me two and a half hours you know and before I know it I'll be knocking them out in an hour
1: yeah there's there's really something to the the idea of action and just doing it and allowing yourself to not be perfect and I think about it in turn with writing, and Michael Malice, our 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 dear mutual friend, has talked about it. Like, don't you know, don't not write your book because it's not going to be Tolstoy or something like that. He might not have chosen Tolstoy as the he he might no, he'll,
2: he'll have. He'll take some sort of literary uh, objection to using Tolstoy. He's yeah, some I, weird guy that no one's ever heard of. That's that right. The perfect example.
1: You know? Yeah. And, and he says, like, walk into a bookstore and, and look at all the crap books around. Can't you be that good? You know, and I think this is a great analogy. And I think about, like, <laughs> going to the beach with my kids and there will be times where you know, it's almost as though I feel that I'm filled with more life force and, uh, and you know, just uh, joy and they want to go in the water and I'm running into the water with them and you just dive in and you're having fun versus when I'm being a more curmudgeonly old man and I'm going like one inch at a time and bitching about how cold it is.
2: <laughs> yeah, man, jump and let to fly on the way down. Another thing as well, like if people need real reinforcement for, to, to start doing something, gym program, go to a yoga class, you know, begin a, a project, a new business, an entrepreneurial approach, approach that girl, whatever it might be. The fear of failure is not the exception, it's the norm. So what you have to presume is that by doing that thing, you are already so much further ahead in terms of competitive advantage. The vast, vast, vast majority of people in life are doing the absolute bare minimum to get through. The bare minimum, that's how we are genetically predisposed. We're supposed to save energy. We don't want to put ourselves into discomfort. We don't want to have change. All of these things, right, we want to strip away these predispositions as much as we can, and we want to live a consciously designed life. I want to do the things that I want to do in life, not the things that seem like what I want to do or like what might be easy, because at the end of life, if I look back and I've just chosen to do those... I'm gonna end up in a place not only that I probably didn't want to be, but that I didn't even mean to get to. Like if you let the passive least resistance and the winds of life just blow you around like a kite in the breeze, you will lead a life that you regret. You'll look back and you'll think, I didn't I didn't fulfill the stuff that I wanted to do. And that's a motivating factor, man. That isn't that's a, a big motivation. Whatever you do today is an investment for your future self to have a memory that it's going to care about. And everyone is doing the, bare, the bare, bare minimum to get by. So if you're concerned about what other people think about you, know that by taking action, you are already in the top 1% of the entire world. No one else has gone up and talked to that girl in college today. No one else has gone up to her. The fact that you have, that's made the difference. The fact that you've started that podcast, The fact that you've started that YouTube channel, wrote that book, did that email list, did that gym session, started yoga, whatever it might be. So you do, man. That's how you separate yourself out from the pack.
1: Yeah, and I I think the girl is a great analogy. And I think what you're saying is super on the money and useful because until you take action and whatever this thing is, whether it's a girl or starting a diet or starting a work project or or whatever, and it could be any of these things, as long as it exists only within your head, then everything about it that's too hard also only exists within your head. And everything about it that's ideal for you only exists within your head. And none of that is objectively real until you talk to the girl and go like, maybe she has halitosis. And it's a, it's, you know, a hard pass after that, you know, I mean, that's possible, you know, who knows what it is, but as long as it's only in your head, then it can be this horrifyingly, horrifyingly terrible, scary thing, or this, I, mm-hmm. this f- fantastical ideal that neither one are true somewhere in the middle. But I think, you know, if going to the gym is scary, make yourself go to five gyms and find one that doesn't feel scary when you're actually there. You know, talk, talk to a bunch of girls, start a bunch of projects. And and to your point, like, you know, the thing you've been putting off for a year might not even be the right thing.
2: You might hate it. You might hate it, man. And that's where that sunk cost fallacy, uh, the sunk cost um, comes back in that you have to understand that by not doing anything, you're tying up mental capacity, the opportunity to find what the thing is. So what you want to do, what everybody listening wants to do, if you're thinking, ah, I haven't really found my thing in life yet, I, I, I don't have a reason to get up in the morning where I'm pumped and I'm gassed to go and do something. If you haven't found that thing, your job should be to explore as hard as possible, try everything that you can, now, this is actually quite painful because a lot of the time you're going to explore stuff that sucks or is a waste of time. It might be costly in terms of effort or money. Um, but once you've found that thing, once you've explored, 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 then you can start to exploit. So it's the explore-exploit matrix that James Clear talks about in Atomic Habits, which is a wonderful book if anyone's looking to get into behavior change. Um, once you've got it, then you start to exploit and you begin to narrow down more and more and more and more finely. It's not just that I'm going to start to read and go to the gym. Maybe I'm then going to do a podcast about going to the gym. Maybe I'm then going to do a podcast about powerlifting. Maybe I'm then going to actually uh, pivot from that and I'm going to talk about keto and how that, you know, I mean, you narrow down until you find your thing. But until you've done the explore at the beginning, until you've exposed yourself to all the different weird, wonderful things that the world has to offer, you don't know what your thing is. And again, like there's another point here. Your thing is not going to be your thing forever. We have these different epochs in our life. I had a, a guy on my podcast, Modern Wisdom, um, called Andrew Scott, who's an economist that specializes in longevity. So the world has never been so old in terms of our average age, and we've also never had so long to live. Last year in the UK, more women had children over the age of 40 than under the age of 20. Really? And one in, one in five women born today is going to live to be over 100 in the UK. Every generation that is alive lives for eight years longer than the generation before, which means that every three generations is alive for another generation. So all of that is like, if you're going to be alive until you're in your mid-90s, you, you need to constantly be revisiting this explore and exploit paradigm. And it might be every five to ten years, something like that. You know what you love five or ten years ago is going to be what you love right now. So you need to you need to get yourself into the rhythm of this, and then not get lazy and think, "Oh, I found my thing. It's powerlifting." Yeah, bro, it was powerlifting when you were twenty-five. You're fifty. You're fifty, and you don't give a shit. You have to drag yourself to the gym every time that you want to go. You know, so it's complex man there's no there's no
1: instruction manual that comes with life sadly yeah i i mean i literally have flashes of uh a period in my life where i had been convinced that uh keto you know and i i had been sold this ideal that you're you know the 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 human body was being poisoned by grains and there was this condition called grain brain and we were all living in this fog and (laughs) And this is years ago, but, but there was, there was a portion of time where I wasn't even doing that. I wasn't even doing keto because it was, I had, I had decided that it was too hard and that I couldn't do it. And at the same time, I believed that it was the only diet that would work. Like we can get into some real fuckery with our minds that twists us into these, these conclusions that are not based on objective anything.
2: not based in reality at all, man. Not, not in the slightest. And this is a big, a big part, I think, of um, having people that you can have conversations with like this. So one of the life hacks that I always recommend to people is to sit down with a friend for 30 minutes once a week, leave your phone outside of the room, and have a conversation about something that you both care about and that you're both going to be rigorous and precise in what you say. The reason for that is that when you have to give form to thoughts by putting them into words that are then interpreted by somebody else, you are forced to make concrete. All of these wishy-washy nebulous clouds, because like most thoughts aren't actually thoughts. They're not articulate concrete objects. They're notions. You know, They're a sense. You had a sense that keto was right, but you also had a sense that it was a bit hard. But if I asked you to define, like really, really tie it down for me, like put it put it on a piece of paper, say it to me. Why this? Why that? It would A lot of it would be emotive words. It would be very notional, right? Yeah. So what you do by having these conversations, it forces you to give form to these things. And if you're speaking to someone that demands you to be rigorous and precise with, with the way that you put your thoughts across, you end up questioning your own biases. Why, hang on hang on a second actually why do i think that? Why do i think that thing? That doesn't seem that doesn't seem logical at all. And then you start to question this thinking. You question all of the, the assumptions and hopefully don't get trapped by this uh, this sunk cost as well.
1: We're talking a lot about action and i, I totally agree that sometimes it is just do don't think do do you think it's necessary to give yourself literal commands with the action? Like, I am going to walk up that hill now. Or, or do you think you, that's even overthinking it?
2: Um, so there seems to be a little bit of evidence that suggests that speaking to yourself in the third person is actually more effective than the first. Oh, wow. You are the sort of person that walks up the hill. This is from Ben Berger on Chasing Excellence. Fantastic book. Great podcast. If you're into uh, the sport of fitness, you will know who he is. But uh, great, great guy. Uh, I used to coach um, Matt Fraser, who is arguably the greatest CrossFitter of all time. And his process is he speaks in the third person. You are the sort of person that you are. There's some evidence that suggests that that seems to be an effective way to do it. I don't really know why. Um, But yeah, we can get into the weeds with the stuff like that, man. Like the, The bottom line is that the end result is what matters. Whether you pontificate for ages about whether or not you're going to go to the gym. You wake up one morning and you've got this gym session that you hate. It's five by five at 90% or 85% back squats in the gym. And it's going to be miserable. And you know it is. You know it's going to suck. You hate this session. And you think all day about it. You're thinking, oh, am I going to go? Am I not going to go? I could do this or this. Ah, no, I should go. And you can hear, that's the the dialogue we have with ourselves, right? We have this bizarre bizarre community conversation with four other people singing fucking barbershop in our heads together. And then you go, no, no, I'm going to go. I am going to go. I am, I am, I am. All of that, all of that thought has led to you going to the gym. There is no difference, zero difference between the results that that person gets And the results of the person who says, it's down on the sheet. That's what I'm going to do. I don't need to think about it again. This is why it's important for us to have the planning first and the executing second. Without a plan, you're not going to know what to do, which means you're going to overthink. You have to have the plan in place. You have to have the structure. That's why having a diet, having a coach, having a training partner, all of these things are great external accountabilities because they don't give you room to think. You'll talk yourself out of doing fucking anything if you have to give yourself the second chance to do it. So make a plan. Revisit the plan, not all the time, not every day, certainly not every minute. Just do the thing you said you were going to do and then dedicate a little bit of time to planning, sit back, have another go, then focus on executing.
1: And and if it is something that you've just had the inkling to do, but you haven't made the firm decision to do it, or you've been talking yourself away from doing it, just act. Right? I think I think just I think just
2: act is a good way to do it. So a much more scalable way to make decisions is to have values and principles that you will always rely on. So you can imagine um, a value is a a value is something that you will not compromise on no matter what. So for instance, my, my five values are curiosity, adventure, uh, selfless development, excellence, and self-care. So everything that I do in my life is underpinned by one of those five core values. And you can have every decision I have to make needs to be in service of one of those five core values. Is this going to help me satisfy my curiosity? Is this going to help me have more adventure in my life? Does this help me to be selfless in my development? Is this pursuing excellence? Does this assist me with my self-care? And if it doesn't, I don't really need to make this decision based on looking at the finer points of all the individual metrics of is it good, is it bad? Um, An operating principle is a little bit less abstract than that. It would be something like... um, When I'm 85% done in any project, I always go much harder. Or no bad reps, for instance, would be an operating principle as well. But I always drill the movement as best I can, whether it be mental, physical, or emotional. Um, By having these, what it permits us to do is to make decisions without having to actually individually assess all of the different contributing factors, because it's fucking exhausting, man. If people don't have their core values down, If they Google Taylor Pearson, P-E-A-R-S-O-N, Taylor Pearson core values and Taylor Pearson operating principles, you can spend – probably take you half a day, but you will come up with the same as me where I've got my uh, cases, curiosity, adventure, blah, blah. Um, It'll take you half a day, but you will then have your core values and you'll start to build some operating principles. And it means that when it comes time to make a decision – You don't actually have to assess it based on what's happened in front of you. It's that's fucking exhausting. You've already defined what the things are in your life that are valuable and what the things are in your life that you want to get rid of or that you're uh, less valuable. Do it that way. You don't need to keep on making the decisions all the time, every time.
1: Right. I mean, I think the decision just needs to be made once. And then it may need to be reinforced. But, you know, that one time can lead to action. Chris, I got to ask and and this could be completely materialistic of me and having grown up the majority of my life in Hollywood. You're an objectively good-looking guy. And Thank you. Thank I would you I would never I would never say that you don't have to work <coughs> for your abs because I know you do. The majority of the objectively good-looking people that I run into are not super interested in this kind of thing. Does that make sense to you? Why do you, why it it does. Why do you think that is? I mean, in my materialistic uh calculations and again, I I say this is uh, super uh narrow-minded yeah, of me.
2: It's fine. Hey, say, say, just say it how it is. Man.
1: I just think that f- uh when you are of that physical cast, you maybe don't have to work as hard for stuff. And I think you're right. And, and I think that, you know, things tend to, people are friendlier and, and so there is, there doesn't require a lot of thought. Maybe the, the idea of failure isn't reinforced. Um, all of that stuff, you know, I, and I, again, I wouldn't put it on the world, like the world needs to kowtow so that I can change my way of thinking. I think it's all within me to figure this kind of thing out and and have the point of view or perspective that leads me towards greatness for myself is all within me. But I do find that, uh, quite often objectively good looking people are not thinking about the kind of stuff you're thinking about. And and it's curious.
2: Yeah. I don't really know why that is because there's a little bit of evidence, fairly tenuous evidence that suggests that people that are physically more attractive also tend to be more, Uh, tend to have higher IQs Um, but I don't know man I think you're right I think that we all know the good looking but a bit ditzy trend you know like the the girl version is sort of the bimbo the guy version I guess is kind of like the the fuckboy maybe or whatever it might be and you get gradations of that you know there's there's every so often some freak savage supermodel who also happens to have a PhD in whatever. I had this lady Ashley Mears who's a sociology professor and like the head of the department but also used to be a supermodel in New York. I had her on my podcast and like she's she's kind of the same. Um, Naval Ravikant has this this quote right where he it was the first thing he said on Joe Rogan's podcast last year and he said um, if you see a bear in the circus you're kind of like oh that's that's kind of interesting but like it's not, not super interesting. But if you see a unicycle, you're like, oh, yeah, kind of interesting. It's not super interesting. But if you see a bear on a unicycle, you're like, holy fucking shit, what's going on? Like, how's that? How, how has he done that? And I enjoy, there's a, a, a huge, huge part of me that enjoys being a little bit of a, a paradox, at least to people's first impressions.
1: Uh-huh. Um, ah, so there know, there's some effort in it. There there was the you you know what I'm talking about, and you're working against it.
2: So there's a part of that, but then there's also a part of me who is spending a lot of time on audio platforms, and people don't see me. And then I get messages from people saying, "Holy fucking shit, man! Like, why I I, I didn't I, in the nicest possible way, I didn't expect you to look like that." I'm like, "Well, dude, that's obviously a a, a huge compliment and really really kind," but that makes me that makes me cringe. I I don't want to be, it it makes me feel so fucking uncomfortable, man. Like, I was talking to Malice about this, like, there is no way for someone who is called objectively good looking to gracefully take it. It's so hard. It's so difficult because it comes lumbered with all sorts of, preconceived ideas about what your values are, about how easy life has been for you. Oh, my God. Must have been this, that, and the other. Everything that's happened at your feet. Like, make no mistake about it, man. I was fucking brutally bullied in school. Like, it was so bad. I was a social outcast. I'm an only child. I had a different accent. So the place that I'm from is quite working class in the north of the UK. But um, my accent is much more sort of central or perhaps southern or just neutral. Um, So I sounded different. My interests were a little bit different. I played a lot of sports, but the sports that I played was different. Like I was a social outcast throughout all of school, throughout all of, like up until I went to college, which is sort of 17, 18, I got to college and then I went to university. And even at university, like I still kind of hadn't really come into my own that. I knew this late bloomer kid and then there's no way For you, it's very difficult as someone who is a working male model now and has been for 14 years, and you know does the fitness stuff and sponsorships with supplement companies and stuff like that. It's very difficult to do the "woe is me" story, despite the fact that by all objective measures, I justify it. It's like, no, I had a fucking really, really tough time in school, but because of the way that I People perceive the way that I look now. If I don't get that same um, that same level of sort of um, support or, or or kind of sympathy, that's it. I don't get that same level of sympathy. Not that I want it. I don't need it. But it's also it's also something that you you're just so chronically aware of how wrong someone's opinion is, and then when you realise that, you think well, hang on a fucking second. If their opinion's wrong about me, how many other people am I making calls about that I think are X or Y or Z? And it turns out that they've got some completely different, totally complicated backstory. Um, but yeah, man, I, I, I take interest in this stuff because I don't want to live a life of regret. I, I can't turn off the brain that I've got, although it would be <laughs> pretty, pretty, um, pretty enjoyable at times. Um and the way that I look is along for the ride right like i didn't i didn't choose the way that I look i didn't choose that I have an interest in health and fitness, but which what self respecting human in the twenty first century doesn't <laughs> this
1: kind of point of view for men I feel like the the space for just thinking about things like this is The door is wide open to women and, um, you know, so much so that there are whole movements against it. Um, And yet I know you're thinking about it. I'm thinking about it. And all of my friends are thinking about it. Now, I'm sure it's too greater and lesser degrees when I started thinking about it I was 500 pounds when you started thinking about it I have no idea (laughs) where you were maybe you were just trying to like you know put another 20 kilos on your deadlift I don't know but whatever it is you had a goal you had something you had to overcome and there is a physical trait that goes along with this that is the the aesthetics of the male physique which Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's just not unless you're a bodybuilder, it's really not something, you, you know, or on going to be on the cover of men's health, which, you know, objectively, you could be. I couldn't, but you clearly could be. Um, I think we're not meant to think about aesthetics.
0: Ready to pop the question?
2: All it is, man, all that anything is, is signaling. You know, um, like, why is it that women tend to find men with more muscle attractive? Now, the evolutionary argument would be that it is strong genes, healthy. It shows um, that you can select for conscientiousness, which is discipline and a trait which um, suggests that you're going to be loyal. Also, from a a really sort of old, archaic, evolutionary perspective, it shows that you have a surplus of calories, which throughout almost all of human history was a rarity. You have more calories than you need, therefore you've been able to eat so much that you've actually put on size, and it's healthy. That would have been hugely rare. All that anything is is just signalling, man. All it is—the girl with the big bum, the skinny legs, the guy with the big arms, the guy with the beard—you know—with decides that he's going to grow his hair long in the dreads so or the, the girl that cuts her hair short. Like, all that anything is, all that everyone's doing is signaling at all times. I don't know. I think, I think men are becoming a lot more image conscious. But as every culture begins, the counterculture seems to rise just as quickly at the moment. So, you know, for every one post or couple of posts that I see now about bodybuilding.com, I see one about the dad bod. But all these girls, I don't saw, Zach Efron's in a new movie, and he's just got like kind of like a lumberjack body like kind of maybe normal guy probably sitting at like thirteen percent body fat, fourteen percent body fat, not a hugely appreciable amount of mass, just like a just a a bloke that probably trained a couple of days a week practically <laughs> like in a gym
1: by the way the, that that is what we're saying about Zach Ephron, who I think you and I both know he works out a lot or at least he did for a long time. Like the dude, Hmm. the dude
2: didn't... In in Baywatch, that guy was peeled out of his mind. Yeah. Yeah. Insane condition. But look at the the most recent photos. Most recent photos is is evidently either by lifestyle or through choice. He's not, he's not doing that anymore. and He does not look, his physique is not the same. But with that, like, you know, the dad bod is, is a thing
1: and are, are, I you, know, so like, are people fetishizing the dad bod now like is this a popular thing or is this or are they anti dad bod like is it a movement pro or, or against
2: I think this might be controversial I think that the vast majority of people who are pro dad bod and less pro dad bod and more anti gym bod okay. I think that's the reason that the dad bod gets support Right. I don't think that it's ever like, I, I don't see how an untrained physique, Now, I'm, that's not for me to say that it's unattractive, but it obviously signals less. Now, there will be certain uh, uh, women and men that it selects for who prefer that physique just because they do. But overall, Alina Moton's physique across the board is going to be more attractive. That's just the way that attraction works. Right. Um, and I think that. So much of what we do now because all of our movements and our thoughts <laughs> broadcast 24 7 across the globe on social media for every brand there is a cell there is a, for every self-branding thought there is an alternate one as well which is i like guys with long hair well i like guys with short hair yeah because they want to be the thing that they want to be the thing that i like guys that are in good condition what i want i want guys that are actually got a bad one you know it's the, it's the counter culture so i don't know man it, 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 I could go on for, for ages about like the unseen difficulties of being a guy that's that's good looking but doesn't care about looks. Like I couldn't give a fucking shit. Every single person that I speak to on my show, you, Malice, Robert Green, Ryan Holiday, Ben Greenfield, I don't speak to them because of the way that they look. I don't give a fuck about the way that they look. Like I want to have interesting and engaging conversations with people, and yet as a guy a young guy who objectively is good-looking, you get labeled with a whole bunch of preconceptions before you start the conversation. And then you have to undo work that you didn't do. Right. These people brought their own assumptions into this situation. These people brought their own preconceived ideas about who you are, what your background is, how easy life's been for you, what, what you choose to have interests in. And then you have to unpack all the stuff that they've done so then you even just get yourself to zero to then decide to move on from there. Now, this isn't the way that it works most of the time. Like, I'm not saying that there aren't situations in which looks are going to be a competitive advantage. Obviously, obviously there is. But it's not all fucking sunshine and rainbows. And it's also not always been this way or going to be this way. You know, the girl that peaks at 19 years old, the, the, the 19-year-old supermodel, might sadly, at 40, not have held on to much of her beauty. She might have been really hot 19, but not be that beautiful from 40. And conversely, you could have the ugly nothing throughout all of high school who end up being like some unbelievable, um, you know, like news show host, like doing the weather, not like one of those girls that just seems like endlessly fit. They're like presenting the weather and they're like turning sideways in a maxi dress. Like, you know, you don't know. Um, I think we're always going to try and jump to conclusions, right? Like, we always want to. We won't try and stereotype people and put them into boxes. But I did um, did a TV show. I've done a few TV shows in the UK, like reality TV stuff. And um, one of the most important things that I learned from that is that when you don't fit neatly into an archetypal box, people struggle to resonate with you. So as a perfect example for yourself, like you're a guy from Hollywood who had a non-typical look to begin with and is now doing the, the Hollywood kind of workout and fitness regime, but in a totally cerebral way, thinking about it, not just doing it for the end result, but actually genuinely taking an interest in it. And it causes cognitive dissonance. It causes people to be like, I, I don't understand. He was the big guy, and now he's the gruff guy, but he's actually talking about philosophy with this Russian guy called Michael. Like, you know, he's just, <laughs> <laughs> he's all over the place. You, you know, um,
1: I think th- I think there are a few re- really important things here, and and I, 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 the first one I want to say is I was asked recently if I was just happy now all the time since I lost weight, which which I wanted to say no, definitely not. Like I, I don't think that like my feet hurt a lot less, and 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 I'm I'm glad of that, <laughs> you know. And uh, I can fly coach now, uh, which my wife is happy about. I'm not necessarily mm-hmm. glad about that outcome. Uh, yeah. You know, so but happiness? No, I, I. So like, I don't think the two. I think more than anything, I'm. I'm happy that I set a goal that I've achieved or, or, or I'm damn close to achieving today, you know, and I, I've, so that there is happiness in that, but I don't think that, that this idea of happiness is, uh, first of all, is an eternal state, number one. And number two, I don't think, uh, aesthetics, Lead to that. I think we can have interactions. I'm happy when I see my kids smiling. I'm happy when I I do something and my wife is it appreciates it versus I fucked it up and did it wrong. You know, like I'm, I'm happy about that. Um, so that's one thing. And then the other thing is this idea of essentialism or or categorizing people. I I I try damn hard not to do that. But I think it's inevitable that we do it to a certain degree. I think our 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 mental capacity is such that we're trying to store things informationally in the most efficient way possible. And therefore categorizing yeah. is how yeah. we do it. So I the first time Michael yeah. Malice told me about you, I looked at you and I was just like. That dude could be – I didn't know you were a male model, but my thought was that dude could be a male model. He's probably not very interesting. And then I listened to your podcast and I was like, oh, he's really thinking about stuff and quite bright. And I dug in and we're friends. And so I had to break through that. Now, I want nothing to do with essentialism. I would rather, you know, just – meet people and have my understanding of them based on that rather than any group that they're a part of, whether arbitrary or abstract or not. I, I that's that's mm-hmm. my ideal. And yet I think it's impossible to do. I just don't think our minds can can store data in that way. Um you
2: gotta have you gotta have those to I agree. You've hit them
1: out Yeah. And so we arrive at the place where Even I perceived myself differently when I was 500 pounds. And, you know, it it actually has nothing to do with who I am innately, but it does have something to do with um, the way I'm living and and the the things that I'm not doing that I want to be doing, if that makes sense.
2: In a very real sense, man, we all are just the choices that we make and the outcomes that we get in life. Like all of the all of the notions in the world, all of the wonderful things that we think don't really matter until we make them happen. And the same goes for most people's immutable characteristics versus the ones that they've chosen. Like, I didn't choose the way that I looked. Like, therefore, I focus people's value, or I try and focus people's values on the things that I do. And the same with you. Like, you are taking pleasure from things that you do that are challenging and worthwhile and make you feel good. Like, that, that is where sort of happiness is derived from in a, in a very, very large part. Like the people who, for <laughs> whom stuff comes easy, they don't take satisfaction, because that's not how satisfaction works. Satisfaction doesn't work by an outcome at any cost. If like people think that the good-looking guy with abs who's in mental health or whatever it might be is just endlessly, bottomlessly fucking satisfied, Like, no, he's got his demons to bear as well, or she's got her demons to bear. She is terrified of the way that she looks if she eats carbs. She is terrible with money. She hasn't had an orgasm in months. She can't bear her relationship with her father. You don't know what people's lives are, and this is why jealousy, being jealous of anyone, is kind of fruitless, right? Because you don't get to take part of someone's life. You have to have the whole. You can't just have Elon Musk's work ethic. You have to have Everything, it's not piecemeal, it's wholesale. Elon Musk is up for sale. Do you want to be Elon Musk? Do you want to be Conor McGregor? Do you want to live in your parents' flat for six years, rolling the same sequences in jiu throwing the same combinations with your punches, for years and years and years on fucking welfare? Is that the life that you want for yourself? Right. If you're not prepared to take everything that someone's got, you can't admire one tiny part, because that's not the way that life works.
1: Yeah, you've, um, you've got to um, take Elon Musk's constipation and hemorrhoids along with everything else. It's a package.
2: Yeah, is, that, is, that inside, is that inside knowledge from L.A.?
1: No, I'm just making it up. I'm thinking of something horrible. <laughs> hey,
2: if, you've got, if you've got Elon Musk's hemorrhoid knowledge, that's what... But yeah, you're totally right. Like, why if Elon Musk's got catastrophic erectile dysfunction? Why if Elon Musk's relationship with his father is terrible? Why if Elon Musk can't bear the thought of his, of his own inner monologue when he goes to sleep at night? do you want that? Do you want to pay that price to be the testament guy that's part of the PayPal mafia?
1: Like, is, is that the a thing, the, 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 the PayPal mafia? Or whatever? Uh, the anarchists. The, they're just trying to c- create alternate currencies, I guess? Uh, so the PayPal mafia, I'm not
2: sure, that was just the name of the guys that founded PayPal back, back, back in the day. So it was Peter Thiel and um, Elon Musk and a couple of other guys who were less famous.
1: <laughs> I think I like that. I'm pretty sure I like yeah, those sure. guys. What started you compiling this, this book of life hacks? Like, what was the impetus that, that led to that?
2: Oh, uh, yeah. So um, I have my own podcast, as I said, called Modern Wisdom. Um, and on that, I like to talk about conceptual, deep conversations, like the one that we've had today. But I like to contrast that with quite down-to-earth strategies that you can implement. Because as we said before the all of the ideas and the notions right they're great but they're quite fluffy and a lot of the time what I like to do is give people something they can actually take away and do today um, so we started a series on my show called life hacks and we did over the last two and a half years we've done 20 hours 30 hours of them so I then put them all together into one ebook I've actually put together a special version for all of the listeners on the show so if they go to Chris Willx.com/gluten. Um, they'll get it's free. They can just download it for free. It's available there. Chris slash gluten and there's over 200 different ways that they can upgrade their life. Um, and it like ranges from speeding up your trackpad sensitivity so that your mouse moves around the the uh, screen quicker to always using scissors in the kitchen to cut chicken to what the most optimal way is to uh, wipe your bum when you're doing a, a sit-down poo uh, with a day for boys. or like, Literally, literally we, went, we went hard, man. When you collect all of the different things, we've got yoga apps in there, we've got meditation apps in there, we've got our favorite binaural beats to work to, the best training shoes we found, like literally everything. Because if you've got an interest in human performance, like it doesn't stop when you leave the gym or when you leave your work desk. It's constantly going. What's the best way that I can cut this chicken? What's the best way that I can enter and exit my car? What's the optimal posture for me to sit at at my desk? You know, all of this stuff. And like I say, we compiled it, put it in a big, shit, big, fuck off ebook. And um, it's there. And uh, if people want to want to get it, they can, uh, they can go and grab it for free.
1: Thank you so much. Yeah, I, I love it. I, I, I find myself looking at it all the time and going like, <laughs> I'm thinking about entering this new space. What does he say about this? And I just go and look at it. You know, it's interesting. It's it, and 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 super helpful because now at the, in this day and age, when we have the ability, to, like like for me, that's what the internet is for. You know, yeah. it's not about the exchange
2: uh, of
1: ideas, man. Yeah, the exchange of ideas and 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 the fact that they're useful and helpful. And you're not going on to somebody else's platform where they're giving their ideas and going, your ideas are shit. Here are all my ideas. You're just saying, look what I've found. And if it's helpful to you, then here you go. It's great.
2: This has worked for me. If it, might, if it works for you as well, then great. Yeah, man. I mean, here's, here's a part in thought, actually, something that um, Derek Sivers taught me, the founder of CD Baby, a real private thinker, Tim Ferriss guest a number of times. He was on my show at the beginning of the year. What he said was that most books that we read, especially in the self-development space, what most books are are justifications and sufficient context that you trust what the author has to say. But most books have one central tenant, right? They have one, one um, primary hypothesis that you need to take away. Digital Minimalism by Cal Newport, you should not use your tech devices as much. Deep Work by Cal Newport, you should do single task focus long, long and deep. You can do around about between three and six hours a day. But Cal needed to write two books alongside those sentences to give sufficient context and buy-in that you trust what he's saying.
1: Right.
2: And what I decided to do with the Life I see book is get rid of all of the context. There is no context. You have to take it on faith that having a sit-down wee is an enjoyable treat if you're a boy. You have to take it on faith that using scissors in the kitchen to cut your chicken and your vegetables is more efficient than you have to take it on faith that Bear Bell's protein shake milkshake over the top of cereal but And some people didn't like that. There was a few people that were like, you call this a book, but it's not actually a book. It's just a list of things. I'm like, well, yeah, because I don't want to have to give people context. The audience that listens to me hopefully should trust me the same as your audience does. If you trust someone, you don't actually need to waste their time giving them context. You go, look, do you trust me? Yeah. Right, okay. I don't need to tell you any of the whys. It's just this is what you do. And that's how you manage to fit 200 life hacks into like 40 pages. Um, It's by doing that. You don't have to actually do any of the shit. It's just no frills.
1: And let me just say, in defense of the sit-down we, I... uh... In the in the early stages of my relationship with my wife, so going back almost twenty years, one night in the middle of the night, I had a, a catastrophic miss, and uh, <laughs> I I fouled I fouled a whole <laughs> box of her feminine products, and wow, and I have been doing nighttime sit down wheeze since then.
2: Jeez. That's the one. I mean, I want to know. Here's something. I'm going to try and request the life hack from your listeners. Um, Guys that are listening, if you go to the bathroom shortly after having sex, so that you're still sort of semi erect, semi turgid, what's the solution? Because should you are doing a handstand? I don't know. Like, there's this weird thing where you can kind of send your hips back, like you're doing an RDL, and like kind of try and aim it down a little bit. You can kind of force it like real, real push down hard, but that's pretty painful. And then it does this weird like forking thing because the pressure is so high. And then you can do a sit down one, but then you kind of wedging, wedging your penis like on the underside of the rim. And that just feels, that feels really wrong. So this is a, an open request for all of the guys. I'll be able, I guess, if you, if you come up with a solution for this. What, what can, what, what's the solution for that, Toby? For,
1: for the semi-erect or fully erect, sit for the fully erect we. I like that we're calling it we, it? too. This is very, yeah. feels very Queen's English of us.
2: That's very British, yes. Very yeah.
1: British. All right, well, that, that request has gone out, so I hope somebody comes up with this, because I'd love to know, too. I don't have a solution. I just have time as a solution.
2: Yeah, no. Well, they'll feature whoever comes up with it. If we get a a satisfactory solution, not only will they feature in my life, I'll put them in the next life activity book.
1: Amazing. Amazing. Thank you so much, Chris. It's been great talking to you again.
2: Bro, any time. I can't wait for Mr. Trump to open the borders and let me back into your country. And as soon as I'm there, I'm going to come and see you and we're going to train and let's uh let's get another one of these done
3: yeah you
1: were yeah let's do it in person um you were meant to come here you were meant to be here right now weren't you
2: correct yeah. middle of may man middle of may i was all lined up ready to go and then coronavirus shit got really really real and um the donalds pressed the no Britons button and uh i can't i can't even get an extra at the moment so i couldn't i couldn't come over but as soon as that's opened up man i'm I'm on plane. the plane. First, the first day that we were allowed to fly in Europe, uh, I went to Ibiza. Um, I like to travel. And um, I was in Ibiza for a few days, which was fun. But yeah, man, I got so many people to see in America. So I just, I can't wait. And then, yes, we can get this done in person. And uh, we can train and do all the rest of it.
1: I'm looking forward to it, brother.
2: Yeah, me too, man. Me too.
1: All right. Thank you. And now I will answer questions that we received at americanglutton.net. This question comes from Ryan. He writes, I'm curious about the variety of clothes you went through on your weight loss journey and when you finally felt you look good in clothes. Thanks for the question, Ryan. I still don't really feel that I look great. Um, I I will say that uh, if I spend some time taking a picture of myself, I can occasionally be happy with a picture of myself and think that the clothes look as though they fit me properly, but that's not, uh, that's not the rule. Those are, that's the exception to the rule. Mostly. I don't think I look great in photographs and I never have. Um, as far as clothes go, you know, I, I, you know, as far as like the extra large clothes go, it's so, I've heard women talk about how their dress sizes are not uniform and and like uh, a size whatever could be different from brand to brand and i feel like that's the same with uh the the extra large clothes so like you get a extra large from one company could be like a normal large from another company and so I mean, I've been all over the place with clothes, and I still don't feel that I could probably walk into a normal department store and necessarily shop. I'm still a very big guy. I don't know. I I do most of my shopping online, and when stuff doesn't fit me, I send it back. Uh, I'm not comfortable trying on clothes in front of people, and it's often been uh, a part of my job. Wardrobe fittings have been been this kind of thing that makes me – very uncomfortable too. These are, these are all just aesthetics things. As a kid, there was like one big and tall clothing store on Fairfax near Santa Monica that my mom would take me to. And that's where I shopped. I didn't, I didn't get to go anywhere else uh, or, or have access to any other clothing really. You know, I wore a lot of Dickie's pants because they made, they had a big Line of uh, big and tall, but I think nowadays you can generally find stuff in larger sizes. I don't feel that I am uh, kind of cut out of the market, and even when I was heavier, I could find generally find clothes that fit me. I think there are a, a, a lot more uh, options today than there were certainly twenty or thirty years ago. <laughs> I mean, it's a it's a tough question to answer because I feel like I should be comfortable and confident in my clothes and, and i'm i don't think i am really um that's just uh my reality but i appreciate the question ryan if you have a question you'd like me to answer on the podcast please submit it to americanglutton.net thanks for listening to this episode of american glutton i'm ethan suplee and as always joined by my chaperone Paige dorian follow us on instagram at american Glutton podcast sincerely
3: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.
0: Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want
3: flexibility with your health
0: insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.